Well, I'd like to encourage you to take your copy and look with me to the book of Romans. We return to our Romans series, and today we'll be in Romans chapter 1 and 2. As you're turning to Romans, when we got here this morning and setting up, I realized real quickly in this long sleeve shirt and this jacket, it's going to be really hot in this building. By the way, Children's Church, if you want to meet Miss Lynn over here to my left and to your, your right, she's standing at these doors, you can meet her there and she'll take you over for Children's Church. So I was making a comment about us, you know, being in the sweat box, also known as the gym here, this big metal building. And uh, a sweet lady said to me this morning, Pastor, if the Christians in Afghanistan can literally face death because of their willingness to follow Jesus, I think we can sweat a little bit this morning. And I thought, whoa, I needed that sense of conviction. Last night, a group of us had the opportunity to meet with and have dinner with the president of the IMB, Paul Chitwood. He's in town tonight at 6 o'clock. I want to urge you to make plans to be at Jefferson Baptist at 6 o'clock to hear from him tonight. It's not often that we have the opportunity to hear from the president of the International Mission Board. He's in town, so I encourage you to do that. But Dr. Chitwood was sharing with us last night that six weeks ago, from the IMB standpoint and the intelligence that they had, they saw clearly that... Afghanistan was going to fall really quickly, and they began an intentional movement to get all of our IMB personnel out of, out of Afghanistan, and they completed the removal of all IMB personnel out of Afghanistan a little over a week and a half ago, so we can rejoice in the Lord with that. At the same time, he was telling us, of course, the IMB, to get people on the field, has to partner with a variety of different organizations to, to put missionaries on the field, particularly in countries like Afghanistan. They had a retired lieutenant from the Marine Corps who was serving with the IMB, but was actually working with an organization, a different organization. And he was the last person to come out of Afghanistan. And he kept telling them, one more day, one more day. And they kept telling him, you gotta get out today. You gotta get out today. And he kept saying, one more day, one more day. Aren't you thankful that many people sacrifice their lives on a daily basis so that this gospel that we center our hearts and our lives around might be told and proclaimed to those who have no hope apart from a willingness of someone to go and proclaim the goodness of Christ to them. So we rejoice this morning in God's providence and getting out our missionaries, but we weep uh, with our church, our brothers and sisters in Christ in Afghanistan who would inevitably face, not all of them, many of them will face the wrath of the Taliban. With that being said, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Romans chapter 12 is a major shift in the book of Romans. We have been in uh, the first major section of the book of Romans in chapter 1 through chapter 12. And there primarily we have seen the doctrinal foundation of the book of of Romans, or as one theologian rightly aptly noted, that Romans chapter 1 through 8 is indeed a theme of the life that God gives. And then moving here in Romans chapter 12 through 15, the life a believer lives. We reflected with one another over the course of, 
a year in that text of Scripture, as Paul often does in a number of his books. Think, for example, on a much smaller level, the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3, Paul gives a doctrinal foundation for that which he will call us to in chapters 4, 5, and 6. He's done the exact same thing for us in Romans. In Romans chapter 1 and 2, and into chapter 3, he has reminded us that all of us, Jews and Gentiles alike, have all sinned. For the wages of sin is death. Every one of us have sinned. But we're thankful this morning for the example that God has given us through Father Abraham. And like Abraham, we too can be justified by faith in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 6, Paul shows us how we are connected to Christ through Christ's sacrificial death that he images for us in baptism. And we, through baptism, are connected to Christ, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And into chapter 7, Paul reminds us that while we have been justified by faith in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, we still live in this world and we struggle with that three-letter word that gets us often called sin. And yet, thanks be to God, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We do overcome sin because of the work of the Spirit of God in our hearts and in our lives. And then we walk together through chapters 9, 10, and 11, and we saw Paul clearly communicate to us that indeed God is faithful to his word. You might remember as we walked through the book of Romans several times, I brought us back to that seminal point in Romans chapter 9 as the nation of Israel struggled with that truth. Is God faithful to his word? They looked at their current situation and they saw that not many Jews were coming to faith in Christ. And yet all of these Gentiles were coming to faith in Christ and they wondered, are we not the covenant people of God? If we are the people of God, why does it appear that God has in some ways abandoned us? And now we see all of these Gentiles come into faith in Christ. And we're reminded in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 that God has indeed not failed in His promise. His promise to the nation of Israel and His promise to the world. For as the Bible tells us in the concluding remarks in chapters 9 through 11, Chapter 11, verse 30, For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient, in order that by mercy shown to you they also now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. Both Jews and Gentiles apart from Christ, are separated from a holy, loving, good, righteous God. And Paul now comes here to Romans chapter 12 through chapter 15, and he seeks to ground the actions of our lives in the truth of the gospel. One thing we're reminded as we read Romans chapter 12 through 15 is that none of us, friends, not one of us, can obey the commands of the Apostle Paul, of the Word of God, of the Holy Spirit, in Romans chapters 12 through 15, apart from 
the saving work of God communicated in Romans chapters 1 through 11. And so, friend, we begin this morning with an appeal. As we reflect on this text and see how this text calls us as a community of faith to live, if you've never trusted in the work of Christ today, if you've never believed in Jesus, we would urge you today, friend, to trust in Christ, to believe in Jesus, to submit your life to Him, and in doing so, live out the joys of this text of Scripture in Romans chapters 12 through 15. Would you read with me this morning what many of us probably know by heart, one of the better known texts of Scripture in all of the New Testament, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, living, holy, and acceptable to God, which is your logical or reasoned worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You're going to notice here in Romans chapter, chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, but also as we move throughout chapters 12 through 15, that in many ways, chapters 12 through 15 is an upending of how the Apostle Paul began the book of Romans. So for example, just keep your finger here in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, and take your other finger and flip with me over to just the very beginning of the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Look with me in Romans chapter 1, verse 24. Romans chapter 1, verse 24. Paul is here talking about what God has done to the sinful hearts of humanity. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, notice this next phrase, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. But notice what the Apostle Paul is calling the community of faith to do in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, as it relates to our bodies. He's calling us to present your bodies as a what? As a sacrifice. Notice again in chapter 1, verse 25. Chapter 1, verse 25. Because God has given them over, this is the result. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and what? Worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So the problem with people apart from Christ in Romans chapter 1, is that they are worshiping a God of their own making. But notice what Paul is doing for us in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. He's calling us to worship God in an ordered way, in a reasonable way, in a logical way. And what is that way? The way that He has given us. Away from ourselves and toward Him. Look again in Romans chapter 1, verse 28. Romans chapter 1, 28. 
And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind, or we might translate that to an undiscerning mind. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. But what is Paul calling the New Testament church, the people of God, to in Romans chapter 12? Look at verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed how? By the renewal of your mind. See what Paul is ultimately going to show us in the context of this passage of Scripture. It matters, friends, how we think and what we think. As theologians would put it, our orthodoxy should always dictate our orthopraxy. What we believe should always dictate how we worship. And here in Romans chapter 12 and verses 1 through 2, Paul sets for us the theme of what he is going to clearly communicate throughout the rest of this book in Romans chapters 12 through 15. And here in verses 1 through 2, we live with this eternal truth that the Apostle Paul calls us to. Our right response to the gospel, our right response to the gospel is to give our lives completely to God. Our right response to the gospel is to give ourselves completely to to God. Paul begins by making an appeal to us that we must offer ourselves as a sacrifice to God. Notice how he does it, with strong language, with a strong appeal. I appeal, I urge, I plead with you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, based off of everything that Paul has just communicated to us about the beauty of Christ. Hear the words that Paul communicated in Romans chapter 3 as he reflected on the sacrifice of Christ. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine uh, forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of one who has faith in Jesus. Paul is saying because of that great and glorious truth, because Jesus Christ, while we were still sinners, died for us. Paul is saying, I urge you to live your life in this way. Notice how he grounds this plea directly in the gospel. I urge you, brothers and sisters, based on what? 
by the mercies of God. Paul concludes chapter 11, and in doing so, he mentions the mercy of God six times. We just read a few moments ago in chapter 11, verse 28, down through verse 30. But look again at verse 32. For God consigned all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. Picking up on this idea of what God has done for us through the person of Jesus Christ, what you and I effectually call the gospel, or Paul refers to here in chapter one, chapter, verse 1 of chapter 12, the mercies of God. Friend, the goodness, the greatness, and the mercy of God is most beautifully and clearly depicted for you and me through the gospel narrative. There is no greater truth of God's goodness toward humanity. There is no greater depiction of God's mercy toward humanity than the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying as believers, not only in his appeal to us, but as believers, this truth must be foundation for our lives. This must be the truth upon which we construct the entirety of our Christian life. And Paul's going to clearly communicate this truth for us. Notice in chapter 12, verses 3 through 8, this appeal that he gives to the church for the way that we are to respond to one another. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, in service and our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. And Paul continues to reflect on how we are to respond to one another. How in the world can we, as cracked clay pots, frail humanity in any measurable way respond to one another in the context of the body of Christ in this way? Do we respond in this way because at the end of the day we are intrinsically good people? No. We can only respond in this way. We can only live in this way because of the deep mercies of God. Friend, has God's mercy so gripped your heart and your life that it compels you in your every action? Reflect for just a few moments, even in this past week. Look at the actions you took. Conversations that you had. 
were they had? That is, your conversations, did you have them as an outflow of a reflection of God's deep mercy towards you? Were your actions this past week, can, can you see how they were directly tied to this incredible act of God on your behalf? If God's mercy through Christ has not gripped your heart, you will never be able to obey the commands the Apostle Paul gives us in Romans chapters 12 through 15. Oh, Paul says, I plead with you. I urge you to live your life in this way, not because of who you are, friend, but because of the deep mercy of God. And you know what happens, friends, when we lose sight of the mercy of God? Even as believers, we then construct or found our actions based on one of two things. Moralism or legalism. See, the difference between these two and a right response to God is a very fine line. But ultimately, that fine line is the intention of my heart. Do I live my life in the way in which the Apostle Paul is going to reflect for us in chapters 12 through 15 because I love Jesus? Or because I want to make sure that me and the rest of you are all following a set of rules that we can check? Yes, I've done that today. Don't lose sight in your own Christian life that the reason we live our lives in the way we do is because of the deep, deep mercies of the Lord Jesus Christ. I appeal to you, I urge you, therefore, brothers, through or by the mercies of God to do what? To present your bodies as a sacrifice. This is what Paul is calling us to do. To live our life as a sacrifice. Now who, might you think for just a moment, is Paul ultimately calling us to reflect in this idea of sacrifice? Who himself has lived as a sacrifice that is living, holy, and acceptable to God? Jesus. You see what Paul is ultimately calling us to do here with these three words, to be a sacrifice that's living, holy, and acceptable? Paul is calling you and me to live our lives like Christ. He first says, as a sacrifice that is living. Now, we know oxymorons, right? You've heard that word before. An oxymoron. What's an oxymoron that you hear often in culture? You guys can respond to me. Jumbo shrimp. Jumbo shrimp. <laughs> All right. What did somebody else say? Pretty ugly. pretty ugly. Yes. Yeah, pretty ugly. 
I have one for you. A short-winded preacher. <laughs> right, Chief? Are you here, Chief? Thank you, brother. It's just a lie, isn't it? Yeah, we, we understand oxymorons. We use them oftentimes in our own lives. Paul, in some ways here, is using an oxymoron. How can you have a sacrifice that is a sacrifice and yet simultaneously living? We think of a sacrifice as something that is dead. In fact, Pastor Laramie read for us at the very beginning of worship from a text of Scripture from Leviticus. And we had all of these laws and rules that a sacrifice was uh, to... Uh, that, that described a, a, an appropriate sacrifice and a listing of things that described an inappropriate sacrifice. But there's one thing that is true at the end of a sacrifice. That sacrifice is dead. But notice what Paul is saying to us. I want you to be a living sacrifice. Friends, Jesus has set the pattern for you and me in what it means to be a living sacrifice. Jesus ultimately paid a heavy price. Jesus ultimately sacrificed on our behalf so that we might indeed experience this other word, living. Jesus sacrificed His life, and in the same way we too, in this gospel call, are being called as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ to be a living sacrifice, one who is continually, every moment of every day, living his life in light of the truths of this gospel. Isn't this gospel narrative a call to sacrifice in a host of ways? In a few moments, Paul in verse 2 is going to speak about some of this, of not being conformed to this world, but being transformed by this gospel narrative. Living our lives in this sacrificial way where we, from a fleshly standpoint, desire certain things, but from a spiritual standpoint, we are rejecting those things. Paul is calling us to live our lives in the pattern of the Lord Jesus Christ, who himself was the ultimate sacrifice, but a living sacrifice. Holy. What's he doing with this word holy? He's calling us to a sense of purity. This is what Jesus was. Jesus lived a morally pure life. He lived an ethically pure life. And the dictates of the gospel are calling us to this same example. Moral purity, ethical purity, not only in our actions, friends, but in our thoughts. As the Apostle Paul will, in the book of Corinthians, go on to plead with us that we ought to take every thought captive. For our minds are battleground, wages between the worldview that the world has to offer and that which Christ has to offer. And Jesus is calling us, Paul, the Word of God is calling us to live our lives as a sacrifice that is pure. Think again of that text from Leviticus. A sacrifice without any blemish. That is perfect. Are you striving toward that in your life? 
Can it be said of you this morning that you are a follower of Christ that's holy, that's pure, that's pursuing moral purity and ethical purity? I want you to be a sacrifice that's living, a sacrifice that is holy. In fact, if we read through the Old Testament, this idea of a sacrifice being holy is indeed a dictate that God himself had had given. So, for example, in Exodus chapter 28, in Exodus chapter 28, here, here are the words of the text of Scripture in chapter 28, verse 38. It shall be on Aaron's forehead, and Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things. This is the same, same word that Paul is using here in Romans. As Moses is reflecting on sacrifice here in the Old Testament and, and Aaron's participation in that sacrifice. This sacrifice must indeed have these holy things. Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. This is what it means to live a life that is accepted before the Lord. A sacrifice that's living, a sacrifice that is holy, a sacrifice that is acceptable to God. Paul spends quite a bit of time in his epistles making a plea to the people of God. Normally he places it in using these words. He's calling us to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. It matters how you walk. This is what Paul is meaning here with this phrase, acceptable to God. We must walk by faith. This is what it means to live our lives as acceptable to God. Are we going to sin? Yes. Paul reminds us of that in Romans chapter 7. But I don't desire that sin. I desire to live my life by faith, acceptable to God. And notice what these things are. A sacrifice that's living, a sacrifice that's holy, a sacrifice that is acceptable. These things are our logical reasoned, responsible worship. Some of you are reading, as am I in the ESV or even the NIV this morning, and your Bible translates this word, logikos, as spiritual worship. But Paul has a whole host of um, words in this pneuma, a category that you hear the word spirit in pneuma. For example, think, Roman, uh, think uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul is uh, pitting two type of lives. He's spitting a fleshly life, a sarkikos life, against a spiritual life that he calls a pneumatikos. He has plenty of examples of words to draw from if he was wanting to uh, use this idea of a spiritual sense of worship. It's interesting that Paul is the only writer in the New Testament that picks up on this word. This was a word that was in regular use in the culture of the day and used primarily as reason 
or reasonable or logical. In fact, Epicurus was reflecting on Christian worship, and he used this word to describe Christian worship, for he saw Christian worship as being very logical or reasoned. And I think what Paul is ultimately arguing for is that the right response of a person whose life has been captivated by the mercies of God is that he might be a sacrifice that is living, holy, acceptable. And this is what a reasoned Christian life should look like. Now, when we think about worship, oftentimes in the context of worship, we look at worship as being something to uh, obtain. We oftentimes look or think about worship, if you will, as something that is to be consumed. We see worship through consumerism. I'm going to show up on Sunday mornings and I want you to perform for me in a certain way so that I can say at the end of the day, that was good worship or that was bad worship. But some of you old-timers, by old-timers I mean somebody that's 40 or older, okay? When you used to get a bulletin, when you got a bulletin and you opened that bulletin up, at the very top, on the left-hand side of that bulletin page, there were three words. What did they read? Order of worship or... Ah, somebody said it. I heard it. Order of service. Randy, what'd you say? <laughs> Randy said it's an old guy. He knows it's service. I grew up with bulletin reading order of service. Now, for a lot of people, they came in and they wanted to look at that order of service. Primarily, that would tell them how long the church service was going to be. I see we've got three songs. The offering's got to be passed. There's a prayer right here, and the preacher's going to preach. Praise God, we can beat the Methodists to the restaurant today, right? Theologically, the church was not giving you this as an order of service so that you might see how this service progressed. This use of this language, service, was an indication of what the church felt about that moment of worship. That worship was indeed a service. That worship was indeed an act. It wasn't something to be consumed. It was something to engage in. And notice what the Apostle Paul is saying. As we reflect on this gospel narrative, God has so marvelously changed our lives and He's called us to be a sacrifice that is living, holy, and acceptable. And friends, this is our right, reasoned, responsible worship before the Lord. In other words, if you're not living your life as a sacrifice that is living, holy and acceptable. I don't care what we do when we gather in here on Sunday mornings. And I don't care what you do in the context of your home with your family. But it is not worship. Worship is far more than what we do here on Sunday mornings, even though what we do here on Sunday mornings is indeed worship. What Paul is calling the New Testament church to do is to live their lives moment by moment, day by day, in such a way 
that we can say that was worship. Now think with me for just a few moments as we think about worship. I appeal to you, listen to this language one more time. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God that you present your what? Your bodies. Paul has already used this language, for example, in Romans chapter 6, verse 6. We know that our old self is crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. As he reflects on this idea of body, he's talking about the entirety of of who we are, absolutely everything about us. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable, logical, reasoned worship. Look what he's saying here as it reflects on this idea of worship. Are bodies visible or, or are they invisible? Visible, right? Every one of us has a body that is indeed visible. So notice what he's doing for us as he paints this picture of bodies who live their lives in such a way and it's depicted as worship. Our worship ought to be visible. In other words, the way we live our lives ought to be so diametrically opposed to the way in which the world lives their lives that people can see in us a difference from that of the world. Recently, we had to bring on a new cleaning crew here at church. And the owner of that company was talking with me last week. And he was saying to me that one of the primary ladies that's cleaning during the week was telling him that the people in our office are just really nice people. And he was just calling to say to me, thank you for being nice to my workers. Well, I want to say thank you. I appreciate that. And on the same, at the same time, I didn't say this to him. I wanted to say it to him. On the flip side of that, I'm, I'm thinking, like, this is almost insulting. You got hired to work at a church, and somehow you were surprised that the people at the church are being nice to you. Something's not right. See, friends, when Paul is talking about here, this is our reasoned worship. He is calling us to a worship that is both simultaneously witness and proclamation. This is how the church lives her life. This is the right response to these mercies of God that has been poured out on our hearts and our lives through the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We must offer our lives as a sacrifice to God, but notice what Paul is doing here in verse 2. In verse 2, he reminds us that we must live out our true identity. We must live out our true identity. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, 
what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul is calling us as believers to live out our identity as believers. These are the first two imperatives that occur in uh, this text of Scripture in Romans chapter 12 through 15. As we begin in verse 12, I appeal to you is, is not an imperative. It does come with imperatival force. But the first imperative occurs here in verse 2. In the first two imperatives, one is a negative and one is a positive. Do not be conformed. And the second one, be transformed. Both of these imperatives are present tense. And for sure, we know one of them is passive, perhaps the other is middle voice, but I'd like to make a plea for you this morning that both of these are in the passive voice. In other words, both of these are ultimately a work that the Spirit of God exclusively does in our lives. So let me translate it for you just real quickly with an understanding that they are imperatives that are present tense and passive in nature. Verse 2, stop allowing yourselves to be conformed to this world. Sometimes we come to faith in Christ, or oftentimes in our journey of sanctification, we spend a lot of time reflecting on that moment in which Christ changed our hearts and our lives. And for some of us, we think, praise God, I got it. I remember that day. And so for Baptists, we have sometimes called that once saved, always saved. And we've erred in that thinking to think that, okay, as long as I can remember some point in the past where I prayed some type of prayer, then I'm okay. It doesn't matter how I live my life. But as we think about this journey of sanctification, notice what the Apostle Paul says. Stop allowing yourselves to be conformed. Why is he having to say to a New Testament group of people who claim the mercies of God that they must continually, every day, moment by moment, live their lives in such a way that they make intentional decisions to not be conformed to the world? Because we live, brothers and sisters, in this period of time in which the kingdom of God has come, but it has not completely come. We live in this period of time in which our hearts have been redeemed by the power of the gospel, and yet, as the Apostle Paul would write in Romans chapter 7, ooh, at moments, sin looks so very good and enticing. See, friends, if you don't live your life in a daily way in which you are being very much aware that you must continually be submitting your life to the Spirit of God, your mind will indeed be conformed to this age. And make no mistake about it, the Apostle Paul is absolutely reminding us that there is a worldview that is captivated by this age, by this world, and there is a worldview that is dictated and controlled by the Spirit. And I can't have some of this, 
and some of that. Otherwise, I end up believing in this syncretistic form of, of religiosity where I have a little bit of the world and a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of that, and ultimately, I have no Jesus. Stop allowing yourselves to be conformed to this world. How do we do that? How do we live our lives so that our minds are not captivated by the worldly philosophies that are so prevalent in our culture? I'm glad you asked. And so is the Apostle Paul. He tells us in the very next phrase, but be transformed. Or we can translate it this way, but keep on allowing yourselves to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. This is an exclusive work of the Spirit. How is my mind renewed? How is my life transformed? By the Spirit of God, through the Word of God. Friend, if you want to live your life today in obedience to the Word of God, not being conformed to this world, but being transformed, your transformation will equal the amount of time that you're spending in the Word of God and the amount of time you're allowing the Word of God by the Spirit of God to transform your heart and your life. See, sanctification is simultaneously a work of the Spirit, of the Spirit, of the Spirit, whoo, a work of the Spirit and an obedient response from you and me. I can tell you right now, at this moment, just how transformed any one of us are right now. as much as you're willing, as much as you desire. See, friends, God, through Christ, has done everything necessary for you and me to have a perfect, right relationship with God. Jesus, the Spirit of God, doesn't need to do one more thing so that you and I can better walk with God. He's done everything. Jesus has been that perfect sacrifice. The Spirit of God has been granted to you and me at conversion. He's given us His Word. And yet just think, Christian bookstores are filled with literature trying to help you and me do a little bit better job in sanctification when, friends, what we so desperately need for sanctification is more of the Word of God. Is your mind and your life and your heart being transformed by and through the Word of God. 
the very end of verse 2. Why are we transformed? Why do we not conform to this world? So that we can understand what God's will is. It's amazing to me the number of times I hear Christian people say, I'm just not sure what God's will is. Or I, I just don't understand Scripture. Now, I understand for all of us, including myself, there's not a person here that can open up a text of Scripture and perfectly understand it at all times. No, that's why we have to study. But I am telling you this morning, friend, you will only comprehend and understand the amount of Scripture that you actually study and read. If you don't understand the Word of God, there are one or two options to consider. One, your life has not been transformed by the Spirit of God. You've never trusted in Jesus. For the fleshly mind cannot understand the things of God. Or number two, friend, you're not spending time in God's Word. If you want to know more of God and His Word, spend time in His Word. So look what he's saying. We've got to know the will of God. So we submit ourselves to the Word of God and to the Spirit of God that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and that will of God that is good, acceptable, and perfect. Paul has a number of things to say about discernment in a number of his writings, both in Ephesians, Colossians, 1 Corinthians, for example. Look with me just real quickly in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, and listen how Paul puts this understanding of discernment in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 10. Actually, let's pick up verse 7. Chapter 5, verse 7. Therefore, do not be partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. And here's this word I shared with you a few moments ago. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. How do I discern what God's will is? How do I know what God's will is? That will that is good, acceptable, and perfect. You see those three words at the end of that sentence? What is good and acceptable and perfect? What is good means, how do we know what God's moral will is? What is acceptable is, how do we know what God's ethical will is and at the end what is perfect how do we know what god's spiritual will is does that mean that i can open up the text of scripture if i'm walking rightly with god if i'm if i'm intentionally 
not allowing myself to be conformed to this world, if I'm intentionally giving myself to the Spirit, that if my tire goes flat, I will know whether I should get Goodyear or Firestone tires? No, God's given us reason for that. Does it mean that if I'm following perfectly the Lord, if I'm being intentional in my life, uh, that if my AC breaks down at my house, that I can walk out to that unit and take that little cover off and know exactly what I need to do to fix that unit? No, I have Bobby Watson for that. Does that mean if all of a sudden I start feeling bad in some way and I can't quite figure out what it is, that if I'm walking just perfectly with the Lord, I can pray about it and He'll tell me, well, Lewis, you got a migraine? No, I have my sweet nurse wife for that. And the Lord's granted her wisdom. Or we have the good Dr. Frankie Johnson for that, right? No, I'm not going to open up the text of Scripture and it tell me specifically how I need to do certain actions or exactly what job that I have got to take. But friends, what Paul is reminding us is that God has indeed given us, through His Word, moral, ethical, and spiritual wisdom so that we can know how to walk, rightly walk with God. And friends, that only comes through the Word of God. Now I want you to take just a moment and read back through Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2 with me just real quickly. And I want to ask you a question. I appeal to you, Therefore, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable, logical worship. You do not be conformed to this world, but you be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Who is the you and the year in this text of Scripture. We oftentimes read Romans chapter 12, 1 through 2, and I'm not telling you it's wrong, but oftentimes we read this in a very individualistic approach. This should be my response to God. But might you be surprised to note this morning that every single one of the pronouns in this text of Scripture are not singular. They are plural. 
You see, friends, what Paul is ultimately saying? This is how we collectively, as a body of Christ, ought to be living our lives in the context of covenant commitment with one another. Now think again of the word that Paul uses here. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies. Paul uses this word body throughout his literature in a variety of different ways. But oftentimes, particularly in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul is using this word body as a reflection of the body of Christ. So let's read this again together. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, that you, Woodlawn Baptist Church, should corporately present yourselves as a sacrifice, living, holy, and acceptable to God, which is Woodlawn Baptist Church, your reasonable, logical response to God. And Woodlawn Baptist, stop allowing yourselves to be conformed to this world, but Woodlawn Baptist, you be transformed by the renewal of your minds, Woodlawn Baptist, so that by testing Woodlawn, you may be able to discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Friends, this is ultimately what the Apostle Paul is calling us to do corporately as a body of believers. This is how we are to function collectively with one another. And so as we think about this idea of corporate worship, or even notice the text of Scripture here, discernment. Who's responsible for the worship of this church? Lewis? Laramie? Rhonda Johnson? No, friend, take a few moments and look around at the people seated to your right and to your left and to those far over to the left and those far over to the right. We collectively. See what Paul is ultimately saying to us, friends. God has so graciously given us one another that I don't have to live my life out on an island by myself, continually striving to live my life in this way. No! God has given me the body of Christ, and the body of Christ bears an incredible responsibility 
of encouraging each other to live our lives in this way. No, I don't have to live my life as an individual believer striving, trying very hard at times to not be conformed to this world. I have an entire group of believers that I'm going together with on a weekly basis that will encourage my heart to not be conformed to the philosophies of this world, but to love Jesus more. This church ought to be a church that is continually pushing one another to love Jesus more, to know the Word of God better, to be better worshipers of Jesus. Why? Chapter 12, verses 3 through 8, so that we might together use the gifts that God has given us. Why? Verses 9 through 13, so that we might love one another in an appropriate way. Both in the context of the church, both in the context of citizens of this world. Why? So that we might know how to respond to one another in terms of judgment, chapter 14. But left to myself, I will never fulfill and complete the call of God in Romans chapters 12, chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, to not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed. Would you pray with me? Lord, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for your grace that you've extended to us through the person of Jesus. And as we spend a few moments reflecting on this text of scripture with one another, Lord, we ask that you might stir in our hearts a deeper affection for one another, that you might deepen our resolve and our commitment to one another. Would you take a few minutes, friend, where you're seated this morning and reflect on this text of Scripture? How are the truths of this text of Scripture being evidenced in your life individually? And how are they being evidenced in your life corporately at Woodlawn? How is this church corporately presenting our lives as a sacrifice that's a living, that's holy, that's acceptable to God? Do you live your life with a pursuit that is singularly focused on what you can do to make yourself better? Or friend, are you living your life in relationship with Christ to see how you might Encourage the body of Christ at large to be better committed followers of Christ. In just a few moments, we're going to stand and corporately respond to the preaching of God's Word. Friend, if you're here and you have questions about what it means to trust in the mercies of God, myself and Pastor Travis will be standing down front. We'll be glad to share with you how you can trust in Christ. Maybe you'd like for one of us just to pray with you that the truths of this text of Scripture might indeed be more evident in your life. That you might be a better committed follower of Christ in the context of the body of Christ at Woodlawn. 
we would delight in shepherding your heart by praying for you. Or thirdly, maybe God is impressed upon your heart that this is a congregation in which you need to be connected to live out your life on mission with Christ. This would be an opportunity for you to express your interest in being part of this faith family. Lord, as we corporately respond to you now, we ask that our response might be pleasing to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.